and to the earlier congregation that a couple of weeks ago, I went through my archives to look at past Christmas messages. I don't like to repeat. So I was looking through, and I discovered that I've preached 40 Christmas messages. Um, I would have been preaching for 50 years. Those of you who are visitors, you, you, you don't know that I started at 10. <laughs> but for 10 years, I was out of the ministry. I was traveling the globe uh, speaking and was not in the pastorate. So it's 40 sermons that I looked through in my archives. Uh, not one of them did I ever preach on Joseph, Jesus' adopted father. Not one time. So I'm going to correct that tonight. <laughs> most of these past Christmas messages were mostly focused on the person of Christ, because after all, that's what Christmas is about. Without him, we don't need to have celebrate Christmas. Uh, rightly so. But a few years, occasionally, I would deviate, and one year I noticed I, I preached a couple of three sermons on the virgin birth and the importance of her virginity to bring up the Son of God into the world. A um, couple of times I preached uh, on the shepherds, and uh, even I preached about the wise men from the East as their significance for the plan of God for salvation for the Gentiles as well as for the Jews. Uh, I even preached uh, some sermons on the innkeeper and King Herod and <laughs> the high priest and, and the importance of Bethlehem of Judea and the prophecy uh, for Jesus' coming but never on Joseph. And so I'm going to do that tonight. Yet Joseph, as I have begun to study and look at it, is truly a key figure in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's for a good reason why people don't preach on Joseph much, because the New Testament and the New Testament writers really give us very little information about him. I found a couple of references about Joseph in Josephus, that is a Jewish historian who documented uh, the history of Jesus and, and the resurrection and birth and so on from a Jewish perspective. He was not a Christian. In fact, the Gospel of Mark doesn't mention Joseph at all. <laughs> and yet, as we will see today, there are wonderful, amazing, great things that we all can learn from Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus. See, culturally and historically, Joseph would have been around 16 years old. Uh, Mary herself would be around 14 uh, because uh, back then, the Jewish culture, uh, the girls really become engaged or betrothed um, immediately after the first menstrual cycle. Even though Jesus was virgin-born, eternal Son of God, and yet many identified Him as the son of Joseph. You see that in the Scripture. Uh, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 to 56, you found that when people were absolutely mesmerized at the supernatural power of Jesus, raising the dead, healing the sick, opening the eyes of the blind, and he was feeding uh, 5,000 people with few fishes and loaves. And, I mean, they were just absolutely mesmerized. So they asked the question, 
Isn't he the son of the Tecton? Or the Tecton son? Now, the word Tecton is a Greek word translated as carpenter. Isn't he the carpenter's son? Actually, it means uh, anybody who works with wood, whether they're putting the frames on houses, doors, and windows, or making furniture. From the description of Joseph's character, we would, you have to understand that Tikton back then uh, would not take shortcuts in their work. They were known as faithful people, as honest people. They not only not take shortcuts, uh, they never produce shabby work. It's always they were known for that. Uh, most of these tectons were known for their patience and their kindness and their perseverance. Amazing. So the question is this. What would all of that tell us about Joseph, Jesus' adopted father? It would tell us a great deal, listen carefully, that God, our heavenly Father, and the real Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, chose very carefully to whom He will entrust His eternal Son, with whom He coexisted since before eternity, whom He can entrust with His Son. God the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, was not going to entrust His one and only Son to just any man. Another question, why did God not choose a priest? After all, uh, priests are the ones who go into the holy, uh, holies and they offer sacrifices and they atone for the sins of the people. Or wouldn't He choose a lawyer? That's not a put down for lawyers. They were very big back then. <laughs> they were called scribes. Or a Pharisee. My goodness, they kept all the externals of the law. Um, or a successful businessman. Or a physician. Why wouldn't he choose a celebrity? Oh, that would have given Jesus leg up, right? Or couldn't even choose a king. And then produce a prince like Harry, who ruins the, ro the reputation of his royal family. <laughs> But God entrusted His one and only Son, His eternal Son, who is there from the beginning, and He will always be there to the end, to a humble Tikton. Now, I want to tell you why. Because it tells you something about the character of God. And if you understand the character of God throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, you see that God has revealed Himself as the one who does not look at the outward appearance. For example, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, he tells the prophet Samuel to go and anoint a king for Israel in Jesse's household. So Samuel, like all of us, get impressed by the physique and the background, the education or whatever it is, and all these big boys were coming in, Jesse's boys, all the older ones. And God said, no, -uh, not these, not this one, not this one, not this one. <laughs> it was a little one, the youngest, who's a shepherd, tending the sheep. He said, that's the one. That's the one, David. And that is why 
through the descendants of David, our Lord Jesus Christ, was born. Because God said to David that on the throne of Israel, the throne of God, there will be a descendant of David who's going to be the king of kings and the Lord of all lords, not just the king of Israel. Now, don't miss this. God said to Samuel, Samuel, people judge by outward appearance. We always do. We always do. Still do today. He said, but I look upon the heart. So he bypassed all these professionals and all these great people. Don't miss with the, the importance of the choice of God for Joseph. See, even psychologists have been telling us this for years, for generations, for decades, that father play an enormous role in bringing up their children, enormous role. Um, for some of us, that role is positive and magnificent, but for others, others of us, it may have been a difficult situation, maybe a painful one, maybe even worse than that. But the important thing is this. It is knowing and experiencing your heavenly Father that really matters. And God can heal whatever past pain there is. And our heavenly Father deals with us ever so lovingly, ever so mercifully, ever so patiently, and ever so justly. You know, back yonder when I was a young father, it feels like 100 years ago, and uh, I felt that my call to, my, to fatherhood was almost in the same par as my call to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I used to tell earlier congregations, you know, before I had this wonderful team of pastors here, I was the only one around, and I, was, I would run the new, the new members' uh, event and the teaching, and I would say to every new member before they joined the church, I said, I want you to know that if I'm not a good pastor to my wife and if I'm not a good pastor to my children, I will not be a good pastor to you. That's where it begins. Himirat. This is important. As I studied the life of Joseph, Jesus' adopted father, all I can say is this, and I spent a great deal of time with it. Thank God he did not entrust me with raising up the Messiah. All I can say is thank God he did not trust any of us uh, or ask any of us to do this task that he entrusted to Joseph to bring up his eternal son. But you know what? Listen to me, please. Listen carefully. Every father, every mother, every stepfather, every stepmother, every grandfather, and every grandmother, we are privileged to raise children for God. I tell all the young couples when they come for an interview before the covenant of baptism with their babies, and I say, you know, your child is not really yours. Shook them a little bit. <laughs> Our children are not ours. The Bible said that. They are God's children. And He entrusts them to us to bring them up in the admonition and the fear of the Lord. And so, every one of us who had the privilege of raising 
children, we're raising them for God. We have been entrusted by God the Father uh, to provide and to give a picture of God's love and mercy and grace and discipline. We are privileged to lead them into discovering that they are the children of the living God. Can I get an amen? Oh, gosh. Well, you, were you, did you take a nap or before you got here? Can I get an amen? amen. Uh, God bless you. Glad you woke up. Now, with this general introduction, <laughs> I get to my message. Turn with me, if you have your Bible, to Matthew chapter 1, verses, well, start at verse 18 anyway. 118. And here it comes. Here it comes. Be ready for it. Fasten your seatbelt, because the birth of Jesus begins with a scandal. You heard me right? A scandal. While Joseph and Mary were engaged to be married, Mary becomes pregnant, and Joseph is not the father. Think about this. Even in our day, I know we kind of loosened, but but I, I wish I can transport you to the Middle East. I wish I can take you to the first century and let you understand the enormity of this problem. This is a huge problem. I, I, I cannot exaggerate. I really can't if I try. I cannot exaggerate what, what a scandal this was in this little town. It is Joseph's first reaction. Listen carefully. It's Joseph's first reaction to this shocking news, and make no mistake about it, shocking news, that begins to reveal to us Joseph's true character. Are you with me? Now, of course, 2,000 years later, we look back, and for the believers know that Mary was faithful. She was not unfaithful to Joseph. We know that 2,000 years later, that Mary was pregnant Supernaturally, we know that. We know that now because we have several hundreds of years of prophets who told us that the baby will be born of a virgin. The prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Christ said, and the virgin shall have a baby. Back then it was a startling news. But now we know that the gospel writers explain to us what happened and why she had to be a virgin. Uh, We even know that it is absolutely imperative for her to be a virgin in order to have a sinless child. Only a sinless child, man can bear the sins of sinners. And I hate to tell you that, man. Sin comes to us through the seed of the man. So when you're spanking your little boy, you're spanking daddy out of him. Hello. Yeah, you got it. You see, sin comes through the man, and that is why she has to be absolutely a virgin. But put yourself in Joseph's sandals. Think of his first reaction. Think of his first thoughts and feelings. Think of his tormented heart and mind 
<laughs> before the angel even came to him, appeared to him, and spoke to him in a dream, before he ever heard that Mary w- was pregnant of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Sometimes I want to ask Matthew, the writer who, of the gospel, and I said, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? You start the birth of the Messiah, the Son of God, with a scandal? <laughs> what were you thinking? Why didn't you report it just modern, some of the modern journalists report? Spin it. Hello. Or fudge the truth, as most of them are doing now. What were you thinking of reducing the birth of the pure, sinless Messiah to like a child who was conceived out of wedlock? What were you thinking when you reported all of the false accusations of the uh, rumor mongers. Jesus was born as a result, possibly, of an affair. Again, we all know the truth now. We know the truth now. We all know now that these rumor mongering people were Christ haters. But in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, makes it very, very clear that this troubling scenario is precisely what Joseph thought must have taken place. You put yourself in his place. Go back 2,000 years ago. If you merge Dr. Luke with Matthew, one is a doctor, physician, and one was working for the IRS, And if you merge their accounts together, you will conclude that Mary told Joseph of her pregnancy on a visit to Bethlehem, Joseph's hometown. Remember, he is from Bethlehem of Judea, and that's the city of David, his descendant of David. She went to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who was pregnant by John the Baptist, a few weeks ago, Dr. Amola was speaking here, and he, and he talked about that's the first evangelism taking place when John the Baptist jumped in his mother's womb to worship Jesus when Mary arrived. Mary herself, in Luke chapter 2, verse 3, did not know that she was pregnant until the angel Gabriel told her. So she goes to Joseph and tells him what the angel said. But listen to me. Men, listen to me, okay? Are you listening? Say amen. We always hear what we like to hear, right? Oh, we're not going to say amen to that one. (laughs) You're going to incriminate yourself. I know. (laughs) Because no matter what Mary said, the angel or not the angel, he was not listening. He was not hearing it. Uh, we hear the things very differently from the way they're said. <laughs> I'm going to move on, otherwise I'll get into trouble. And Joseph hears this. All he can hear is, his fiance is pregnant, and I'm not the father. His fiance is pregnant, I'm not the father. Here's something else I don't want you to miss, please, in that verse 19 of Matthew chapter 1. He said, Joseph was a righteous man. He was a righteous man. 
It's important. The next line tell you, how does he know that he was a righteous man? Because he did what nobody would have done. Because he did not want to humiliate her, which most men would have done back then. And he decided to just call off the engagement and call off the wedding and break the engagement quietly. Listen to me. In order to understand Joseph's godly response, yeah, you have to understand the custom of that day. You miss it if you don't. I know there are some foolish false teachers and preachers who deny the Scripture, who deny the Word of God because they always judge it by the 21st century cultural mentality or milieu. They never go back and look at it in its cultural context of the day. That's why they're false teachers and false preachers. Let me show you how it worked back then. Back then, two sets of parents get together. When they have kids or about five or six little, little kids. One is parents of a girl, the other one is the parents of a boy. And they'll come together and they'll say, let's agree for our kids to marry each other when they grow up. I, I know, I know it sounds old-fashioned, right? They didn't have Starbucks and, you know, going, going clubbing and getting, they're sitting there until the urge to merge. We didn't have that. And as soon as the girl reaches puberty, the two sets of parents get together again, and they said, okay, we made this agreement that our kids must marry each other. Now is the time. And they get engaged, mostly 16 for the boy, 14 for the girl. And the engagement takes place. I'm going to show you how serious that engagement was. It wasn't just to put a ring in and every time you get mad with your fiance, you take it off and, and you put it on. It's the stuff you see in the movies. That was a serious stuff here. The father of the groom at that moment pays a certain amount of money depending on his wealth to the father of the bride. It's not purchase. It's not money... Uh, don't, don't misunderstand that. It's called Mahar or Mohar, M-O-H-A-R. By the way, this is still goes on in the Middle East today. It still goes on in, in, in many cultures within the Middle East. Uh, when I preach in the Middle East, uh, I try to kind of uh, be relevant to their culture. I was preaching about the parable of the wedding through an interpreter, of course, and I wasn't sure whether he's really getting it or not. But I said, I said, in America, the mother of the bride cries at the wedding. And they looked at me, and I, we couldn't understand, why, why would she do that? I said, because they tell her that the daughter marries a boy like her, hus like her father. That's why she cries at weddings. Ah, but in the Middle East, it is the father of the groom who cries at weddings. And they were looking at me too, and they said, well, we didn't see the father cry. Yeah, he's crying inwardly because he has to pay for it. 
after all, the father of the bride is losing his daughter to the husband's family. Actually, the bride is the one who gets to keep the money. So in case you think they were not liberated, they were very liberated. <laughs> the fa her father doesn't take the money. She does. And uh, it's like a, a, a saving account and a, and a pol life policy all at the same time. <laughs> Just in case the husband dies or divorce or whatever, it will be like a, an alimony and, and a widow's pension all at the same time. In addition to that, the groom himself, he gives the bride certain sum of money called matan. Wow, I'm boring you with this trivia. Listen to me. I'm not boring you with this trivia. I'm telling you this was a serious matter. This engagement was so serious that a lot of money have been paid. It was not just an engagement. Hey, well, let's, uh, uh, you know, get engaged and here's the ring and it's done. Now, this is a serious matter. To be betrothed is a big deal. It was a big, they're like married. They're actually like being married with the exception of one thing, and that's the consummation of the marriage. That only had to wait till the wedding night. Please listen to me very carefully. Listen carefully. It is of uttermost importance to understand that in Jesus, God came from heaven. That in Jesus, God took on human flesh. That in Jesus, God entered into humanity. That in Jesus, God is now divine human at the same time. But at the same time, Joseph could not comprehend all of that. He just couldn't get it. All he could see is that he had not consummated the marriage, and his fiancée is pregnant. And once Mary became visibly pregnant, all the gossip Did you hear? Did you hear? Did you see? Did you hear? Did you hear? Did you see? All the gossips going on in the town. What would Joseph do? If he followed the tradition, he would have gone to the priest and have told him what happened, or in public place announcing it, and, 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 and probably they would have judged Mary as an adulteress. Uh, she would not only be humiliated and scorned, she would be put to death. Yes, the law said an adulterer should put to death in disgrace. But if the situation reversed and people assumed that Joseph was the father, he would have become the guilty party and would accept the stigma and the shame that goes with it. Back to verse 19, Matthew 1, underline it. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. I told you that in one sentence you learn so much. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, and he did not want to humiliate her. So he was going to break the engagement quietly. Now, beloved, listen to me. Please listen. This is a remarkable thing to watch especially in those days, when you understand those days. And if Joseph can teach us anything 
us fathers and husbands, if He teaches us one thing, it would be to tell us that grace and mercy is God-like character. People today falsely talk about toxic masculinity. Have you heard that term? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Toxic masculinity. I've heard it, read about it. Oh, but listen to me. These are the people who are trying to divide us as a nation. They're trying to divide us as people. They're trying to divide us by race. They're trying to divide us by our, our, our sexuality. They're trying to divide us as men and women. They do not understand that biblical masculinity is filled with grace and mercy and servant leadership. So don't let them brainwash your kids, dismissing the importance of biblical masculinity and biblical femininity. They complete each other. They fulfill each other. They complete each other. But there's more. There is no telling how many times the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, as growing up in the house of Joseph, observed these characteristics in His adopted father, Joseph. There is no telling how many times Jesus has seen Joseph showing mercy to those who have wronged Him. There is no telling how, many, how often Joseph, uh, in his graciousness, uh, expressed it toward those who hurt him. How often did Jesus watch Joseph exercise forgiveness? Forgiveness. In Luke 23, 34, when Jesus hung on that cross in total agony, not only phys- just physically, but emotionally, and, and, and above all, spiritually, as He carries your sin and mine on that cross. He prayed to His real Father in heaven, and He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He learned all that as He watched His adopted Father. But listen. Thank God, good as this may be, that was not the end of the story. This is not the end of the story. The merciful, gracious, heavenly Father sent an angel to Joseph. Chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. And the angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because that child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit of God Himself. She shall give birth to a son and call him Yeshua. Why? Because that name means Savior. Savior. He will save His people from their sins. Why did the angels say, don't be afraid? Normally when the angels appear because they're such fearsome characters, they'll say, don't be afraid, but not here. Here, in this case, He's not telling be afraid of the angels, but He's telling Joseph, do not be afraid of this mission that God has entrusted to you. Do not be afraid to raise this child, for He is God's Son. Do not be afraid to raise up 
God's Son, for He will not only redeem you, but He will redeem millions of people throughout the world. Don't be afraid to pour yourself into Him, for He's going to pour His life for you and for many. Don't be afraid to embrace God's plan for salvation of the world. Don't be afraid of this enormous responsibility. Don't be afraid to play a major role in God's salvation plan for everyone who will believe in all these 2,000 years. Don't be afraid to nurture that boy because he spiritually going to nurture you. Yes, it was a scary task for Joseph, of course. It was a terrifying mission, of course. It was an extremely challenging call. But this mission of God's Son will change the world one person at a time, one person at a time. Don't ever forget that God is the one who named His Son Jesus in English, Yeshua in Hebrew. Let me tell you something. Whether you're a believer, pre-believer, or not a believer at all, I want to tell you something. I pray to God that you never forget. There is power in that name, Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. Can you say that with me? So much so that those who rejected Him as Savior and Lord, those who refused to believe Him as the only Savior of their souls and the Lord of their life, those who refused, they refused to name that name that God Himself, God the Father gave Him, not one man, not, body, not the family. For example, the prophet of Islam, Muhammad, in all of his writing in the Quran, not one time did he mention the name Jesus. He called him Isa. Do you know why? Because all of his knowledge in the middle of the 600s as he traveled Arabia, all of his knowledge about Christianity came from Jewish tribes who lived in Arabia. See, Jesus predicted that Jerusalem would be raised by the Romans. And if you read the details of 70 AD, it was fulfilled literally. Jerusalem was wiped out. And Jews scattered everywhere. Some of them went to Arabia. And because they rejected their Messiah, their Savior, and their Lord, because they rejected Him, they decided not to call him by name, and they called him Esau. Well, the reason it's called Esau, because from Esau, who was the rejected son of Isaac, not Jacob, who was accepted. That's why they called him Esau. So all of his writings, all he knows is Esau. He refused to acknowledge him as Savior and Lord. He called him a prophet. This is to say nothing of how those who hate Jesus in the West in the West, they only use his name as a swear word. Let me tell you something. I shudder when I think of their judgment that is coming. Or forbid his name to be mentioned in public. When they call me to give a prayer somewhere in public and they say, don't pray in the name of Jesus, I said, go and find somebody else. I'm not going to deny my Savior for anyone, not even for life itself. There's power in the name of Jesus. Can you say that with me again? 
That is why they don't want it. They want to save themselves, or at least they think they could. So let me ask you this as I conclude. What about you? You've heard the message so many times. You've heard God calling you many times. It's not the first time. Maybe for the first time, but I know He's called you before. Come to Jesus as your only Savior. Come to Him out of sin to salvation. Come to Him out of death to life. Come to Him out of guilt and shame into peace and joy. Come to Him out of your own preconceived idea of what God should be like or is like or His Son should be. Come to Him. To come to Him and accept the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Probably some of you, every time you hear the call, you get convicted just for a moment and maybe lasts for a couple of hours, but then within days, you forget all about it. You go back into your life of self-centeredness and self-focus and think that you are God. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of watching us around the world? You might not hear an angel who says to you, don't be afraid, but you hear the Word of God Himself, God's own Word saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to commit your life to my Son who came from heaven to die for you and pay for the wages of your sins so that you can be set free. Now, I don't need to tell you that Christmas is not about celebrations and parties. We made it that way. Christmas is not about decorations and gifts. We made it that way. Christmas is not even about family and friends, good as this may be. Christmas is about God calling you and you and you and you and you to come to Him, to come to Him and receive His Son as your only Savior for this babe of Bethlehem. 33 years later, he died on that cross as a ransom to pay for everyone who comes to him and receive him. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. And then he rose again on the third day, and the power of that resurrection assures every believer that of their own resurrection. Will you accept this call? Today, will you accept this call? Will you accept his mission in your life? Or will you decide to stay in your murky, muddy comfort zone and refuse to be washed and cleansed by his blood? Would you embrace God's plan for salvation, your salvation? Indeed, I did. I was carrying a weight of sin and guilt and shame that night on March 4th, 1964, when I surrendered my life to Him. Or will you let another occasion, another opportunity go by the wayside? You'll another chance. You'll be forgotten. The Bible said, now. Today is the day of salvation. Don't reject it. Don't postpone it. Don't put it off. 
I'm always sharing Christ with people. I share him from the pulpit. I share him one-on-one with my neighbors and my friends, everybody I know I share Christ with. On planes or whatever I am. I had a neighbor whom I really liked. A fine man. Single man, he never married. Extremely successful. And I shared Christ with him. On numerous occasions, as we go in the gym and I'm, I'm forever talking to him, I'm forever explaining to him that come to Christ. The last time I pleaded with him, and he said, oh, Michael, that's not just for me. Two weeks later, he was found dead in his house, in his apartment, a drug overdose. Too late. There may be, for someone, and I don't know, God knows, this is your last chance. May not, you may not have another chance to come to Christ, surrender to Him, believe in Him, make Him the Lord of your life and the Savior of your soul. This is your only chance. For some of you, you may not get that chance again. Will you pray with me, please? And I don't know where you stand. I don't know what your preconceived idea of Christianity and Christ, and, but it really doesn't matter. I beg you today, listen to his call. It will make no difference to me whether you accept him or reject him. That's your decision. That's why the Christian faith has never been forced on people. It's preached. And you can reject him. You can accept him and receive eternal life, assurance of eternal life, here and now. And if it is your decision to say to the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I come to you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for your willingness to forgive all of my sins, past, present, and future. Thank you for your willingness to write my name in the book of life that I know when it all ends, I'm going to be in heaven with you. I pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I would love to be pastors standing here. I would love to.